The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. Ben, Christy, good day. Good day. Hey. Hey. Christy uh, Penley and Ben Sternke. Um, I'm Matt Tevy. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Uh, Christy, you've been, you've been doing this podcasting with us now for a bit. I have. Do you know how long it's been? Do, do, you know, do you do you have any sense of when you started? I don't have any sense uh, of that. No. Do you have a sense? Do you know? 2014, I believe, was Come your... On. I don't no. know. I don't. I actually don't That's remember. If you told me it's been six months, I'd be like, sure. And if you told me it's been a year and a half, I'd be like, sure. I don't know. That it's seems right, too. somewhere in there. Right. Yeah, I have no idea. Pandemic. But it's pandemic. Uh, time gets fuzzy in a pandemic. Pandemic time. Yeah. I actually put this out in the in the in the Gravity Links email uh, this past week. There's an article about like scientists are like this is a real thing, and the People the more time? loss of time fuzziness you have, really, uh, <laughs> actually the more chance you have of actually developing more serious mental health problems. Oh, great. Oh, my goodness. So well, I'm going to have to like, look oh, it up shoot. now, so I don't. That happens to me all the so time. So it's clear in my head. I'm yeah. guessing a year. It feels yeah. like a year to me. I'm guessing a yeah. year. Yeah. But I'll look it up and find out. Yeah. yeah. How, how's it How's it going? 
Do you enjoy doing this, Christy? <laughs> should we do a Should we do like a review? Should we do like a retrospective, like a job like review. A little... I know, How do you, right? do you feel like this is going? Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I love it. I really love it. And I actually mm. just took a new job. And mm. when I took that job, I was like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to fit the podcast? Right. You know, we got to make sure oh, this yeah. happens. Right. Um, and so, and it don't worry. It's don't worry, friends. It's okay, I'm here. I'm here. As I long just, as you I have just heard me. a collective like gasp. Side no, you didn't. No, a side of relief. Did. I heard that. I heard um, it. A gas. Yeah. And anyway, I I love it, and I love the interviews. I feel like I learned. Like I, I it's like yeah. gold to me, and yeah. so mm-hmm. uh, I'm just grateful to to be a part of it and to, um, you know, you guys give me voice, and it's super kind of you. So mm. it's been great. Well. I uh, I was going to speak on behalf of Ben and I, but he said he prepared some comments. So Ben, I'll let you go ahead and uh, tell Christy <laughs> the things you wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. The um, we think you're doing great, but no, just yeah. <laughs> no B plus. Christy, B plus. Christy, this is amazing. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. You've added so yes. much to what we do. Mm-hmm. And just so the listener knows, um, I. Ben and I do the lion's share of work for the podcast in terms of preparation so that Chrissy can kind of show up and participate in the way that she's able to fit it into her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and With her pink just, headphones. But yeah, right. Because we definitely don't pay her any money. Yeah, like, <laughs> not yet. Not gets, yet. Yeah, yeah. Not, not yet. We'd love to, but uh, yeah. that's not kind of how this works. So. Um, but I'll have to say, Christy, like, um, I consistently hear from people um, who contact us that they resonate with your perspective and your voice and your heart. I think there's certain people that just listen to us so they can hear you, which is great. Mm. Uh, you add so much to what we do, and I'm just really, yeah. I don't know, you've been a friend of mine for 15 years, uh, more than that, gosh, we're old, uh, 18 years. And um, yeah, uh, it's just a delight to get to see you one, two, two, one or two times a week to do this. Thank you. Thank you. It's so kind of you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're awesome. It's great, Christy. We appreciate you're you. Great. Yep. Yeah, and um, may your may your pink headphones never die. Yeah, there you go. Or maybe just get another pair of them once those die. So Pod- I don't know if they make them anymore, but uh, you know, podcast long happen. and prosper. Um, <laughs> well, you know who else is great is Joel Bowman, mm-hmm. who's our guest today. He is on the podcast. Joel and I met via social media. I know social media is a complicated place. A lot of people are like, nothing good can happen. Uh, what good can, can come out of good come out of social media? Twitter, yeah. you know. But yeah. uh, Joel mm-hmm. is a guy that um, I met on social media, and mm-hmm. the reason he's on the podcast is because we would DM each other and chat and comment on each other's stuff, and then he would send me articles he was writing for the Baptist News Network, and and I read them. I'm like. Dang, Joel, mm-hmm. you want to come on our podcast and talk about what you're mm-hmm. writing? And he said yes, and then we did it. Yeah, it that was w- great. The end. That's going to be in my yeah. memoir, that little story I just shared. <laughs> Nobody yeah. will buy it because it's not super exciting. But anyway, yeah. uh, I've known Joel a long time, and I was excited that you both got to like hear from him and like yeah. be with him. And I'm excited yeah. for our listeners to do that too. Yeah, it's really good stuff. And there's a chance that I might have been in Sunday school with him. Do you remember, like, in this podcast, we talked about the fact that yeah, I, right. I actually never asked my dad. Now I'm going to have to ask my dad mm. if it, that's the church he took me to when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, but we went to Same I went to an all all black church, and uh, I was the one white girl. And so, anyway, it's great. Amazing! I forgot about that. That's yeah. so, so true. All right. all right. Well, in a future podcast, we'll find out. You'll ask you write it down. Ask your dad. I will. That would be, be really fun. All right. All right. All right. We ready? Here we, we go. Get into it. Here we go.
We are joined today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast by Reverend Joel Bowman Sr. He's a native of Detroit, Michigan, and for the past 21 years, he's served as the founder and senior pastor of the Temple of Faith Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Joel holds Bachelor of Social Work and Master of Social Work degrees from Wayne State University, and he's also a graduate of Moody Theological Seminary. A licensed clinical social worker, Joel has 30 years of experience in the mental health field. Joel maintains a full-time practice providing therapy to America's military veterans. He is a seminar facilitator, a freelance writer, poet, and a thought leader in the areas of racism and racial trauma. He's been published in numerous places, including the Louisville Courier-Journal, The Front Porch, The Witness, Three-Fifths Magazine, and Baptist News Global. And maybe the most important thing about Joel, he's married to Nanette Mitchell Bowman. And they have three children, Kayla, (laughs) Katie, and Joel Jr. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Um. Joel, we were chatting beforehand. Uh, I, ben and I just live up the road in Indianapolis, about two hours north of Louisville, for those who uh, don't live in the Midwest. And I think Joel and I m- made acquaintances on social media. So everyone who thinks That's something right. good can happen on social media, um, uh, I think meeting Joel... Think again. One good thing happened. One good thing <laughs> happened. Think again, social media. Uh, yeah. I, I, think, I think meeting you, Joel, on social media was part of that. Um, Joel, we're going to talk about some of your writings that you've written for Baptist News Global, um, something I have a few friends that write for them. They're putting out some really good uh, content these days. Uh, mm-hmm. but, first, but first, maybe as context for um, just getting our listeners to um, understand who you are, tell us a little bit about growing up in Detroit and um, a little bit about your church faith journey and how you ended up in Louisville. Yeah, so I jokingly say, Matt, that I had a drug problem going up simply because my mom and dad drugged me to Sunday school. They drugged <laughs> me to church. That's a, that's <laughs> a preacher joke. Job. That's a I preacher thought joke. I'd heard yeah, all the preacher jokes, Joel, joke. but now I had yeah. it. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. <laughs> yeah. So, so I came to faith in Christ at the age of 12 was raised in a Christian home. My dad was a deacon and then subsequently a preacher. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. And so just church is all I know in terms of my spiritual formation. It is the foundation for who I am. And I'm proud to say that I am a product of the black church. And I believe that that's relevant to our discussion today. Yeah. And so having been raised in a traditional Black Baptist Church context, I certainly had an integration, if you will, between personal piety and social justice. And as you know, in the evangelical community, oftentimes those things are separated. But I grew up in a context in which there was a high view of Scripture on the one hand, but a strong social justice tradition on the other. And that's something that is endemic in really most major black denominations and churches is that you have those two things that are not mutually exclusive. And so subsequent to my growing up at Second Baptist Church in Detroit, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ at the college campus of Wayne State University, and that was kind of my initial entree into white evangelicalism. And it was culture shock to I, a large I can, extent. I can bet that was huge culture yeah. shock. 
It, it was. It was. You know, it was great times overall. My spiritual mentor I met there, he was and is an African-American staff person with crew. Even today, he's been on staff for over probably 30 years or so. But wow. having entered into my freshman year at Wayne State, I needed spiritual support. And so I got that through Campus Crusade. Certainly not all of my experiences in white evangelicalism have been bad. Uh, that was certainly one of the redeemable things that I experienced there on the campus of Wayne. Mm, that's great. That's great. And then um, your your journey to be a bivocational pastor or a co-vocational mm-hmm. pastor, that's why Ben yeah, and I— story. Ben and I, and even Christy, I think, would all all have had t- seasons of time of being co-vocational. Um, uh-huh. Just tell us how that how did that emerge for you? Huh. You know, interesting story. So I entered the ministry in '94, got my license to preach at Second Baptist, and then moved from there to 12th Street Missionary Baptist Church in Detroit. And during that time period, I was not a senior pastor. And so I was working my regular jobs in social work at the time. And in 1999, I got the call to pastor the Greater Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church here in Louisville. That was my first pastorate. It was a quote-unquote full-time pastorate. I say quote-unquote simply because there's no such thing as a part-time pastor, right? (laughs) And so... Can I get an amen? Amen. So, So... I was there for two years and full time. And then when we planted Temple of Faith Baptist Church, where I now serve as founding pastor, I continued to be full time. I had a strong enough nucleus to continue to only work a traditional ministry job. However, around 2007, 2008, something bad happened with the economy in America, the Great Recession. And so when the American economy caught a cold, we got pneumonia. And so Mm. that resulted in my having to go back into social work practice. And I was drugged into that kicking and screaming. Uh, I was angry at God. I felt I had Mm. received a demotion, right? Um, But Mm. later on, the Holy Spirit really dealt with my heart and helped me to see being bivocational or co-vocational as a blessing mm-hmm. and not a burden. And there are a lot of guys and, and ladies who are in the pastorate right now who are really struggling financially because the church is struggling and they don't have another stream of income. Yeah. Uh, well, now I have an excellent uh, job as a federal employee. And so God is providing for our family despite the ebbs and flows of ministry. And so there are a number of different um, advantages to being bivocational. And one is you don't get lost in the ivory tower of church ministry. You're kind of out in the world and you're dealing with regular people within a secular context. And so now I see bivocational ministry as a tremendous blessing, uh, Initially, it was in disguise, but now I can clearly see that it is, in fact, a blessing. Yeah, 
I, th- I think uh, I needed to hear that. That's the whole reason we're talking. If that's the whole reason we're talking, Joel, I needed to be reminded that my co-vocation is a blessing. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's that's great. So, so, and and not only do you have uh, a family, uh, you're a pastor, uh, you're a clinical social worker uh, with mm-hmm. uh, military veterans, but you also are a writer. Um, and I wanted to yes. chat with you tonight. We want to chat with you tonight about a couple of articles you've written recently. For Baptist mm-hmm. News, one is uh, six ways white and multi-ethnic churches can heal the wounds of racial trauma. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll start with this one. Um, I think uh, maybe just to start us out, then could uh, could you help us understand this this phrase racial trauma? What 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 is racial trauma, mm-hmm. and how does it manifest itself in our lives? Yeah, so the term racial trauma is relatively new. It's come about, I'd say, within the last 15, 20 years. And racial trauma is simply the cumulative effects of racism on an individual's mental and physical health. And that particular definition comes to us from Dr. Robert Carter, who is kind of the father of racial trauma research and work. And racial trauma is presented as something that primarily impacts people of color and indigenous individuals as they are the targets of systemic racism. Now, is it possible for a white person or someone who's not a person of color to experience racial trauma? I would say it is possible in a vicarious way if they are in proximity to persons of color and have a relationship to persons of color, um, then yeah, they can experience, I guess you would say, vicarious or secondary racial trauma. Dr. Ken Hardy has an interesting quote I want to share with you. He says that racism is a traumatic form of interpersonal violence, Mm. which can lacerate the spirit, scar the soul, and puncture the psyche. That's a powerful, powerful quote there that really gets at the heart of what racial trauma is. And racial trauma can occur in many different forms. I've mentioned secondary or vicarious trauma. I experienced racial trauma when I watched for the first time the video of George Floyd being murdered by Chauvin. And I began to have some flashbacks, some nightmares, and some intrusive thoughts, some of the symptomology of PTSD. I literally pictured myself in his position, having that officer with a knee in my neck, because there is an existential connection between me and George Floyd in as much as we are both African-American males. And there's a commonality of our struggle, a commonality of our plight that makes it so that in a secondary or vicarious way, I experienced that trauma that George Floyd experienced, though not personally, but in a secondary or vicarious way. So that would be one example of racial trauma. There are microaggressions that occur 
those daily slights that people of color oftentimes face that can be traumatizing. I can recall, for instance, when I was in high school. Now, this is another part of my story. I was raised primarily in Detroit public schools going there, but in my sophomore year in high school, my parents moved me to a predominantly white Missouri Senate Lutheran high school. Okay. Oh boy. And if you know anything <laughs> about Missouri Senate, it has its own racist baggage. Well, I was a vocalist in the choir, very active in the music program there as a baritone and bass. And I would do solos for the choir. Well, the principal at the time, as you know, in private Christian schools, oftentimes principals and administrators, they multitask. Well, he was also a previous music teacher and began to do some vocal coaching with me as I was preparing to do some solos. And he stopped me in the middle of my practicing and said, Joel, can you please get rid of that lazy black sound? Now, this was in the 1980s, around 1984, 85, when this occurred blatantly racist statement. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom, after I shared with both my mom and dad what happened, my mom came to that school mm. and she, in an eloquent way, cussed him out without using one curse word. <laughs> yeah. As yeah, a mama can, can do. You know right? what, and, you know what, Joel? Yeah. I bet there was nothing lazy about the sound coming out of her. Nothing lazy. <laughs> Nothing lazy. In fact, she said, if you do not apologize to my son and to me, I am going to pull him and my money out of the school. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Now, he did apologize, but it was very, very disingenuous. Sure. And, you know, subsequent to that, there were other microaggressions and, and traumatic experiences that I had while in the school. Yeah. <sighs> Wow. You know, as you're talking, Joel, I'm thinking about something we, we were texting about earlier today. Um, mm -hmm. Just today, the Department of Justice announced that they have indicted four of the police officers who were responsible for Breonna Taylor's murder. Hallelujah. Uh, right. In your town, uh, what was that, two years ago, right? Yes. The two, two years ago. Yeah, um, 2020. Right, right. So you texted me about this. And then we mm -hmm. were chatting a little bit before. So there's a, there's, I'll, maybe I'll let you narrate this. There's a feeling of relief and joy. But before that, there was, I think, things that were done that compounded mm -hmm. racialized trauma for the black community in Louisville and across the world. Maybe, maybe yes. you could just talk a bit about how, how that is a part of racialized trauma too. So there's a long history of, police officers in a militaristic way policing African Americans in an overly aggressive way. And uh, some historians can connect that back to the slave patrols of the 1700s forward. And so as we have in the most recent times, witness the killing of African Americans by police, many of us had come to the place where 
we did not expect any justice. We did not expect that the police officers involved would in fact be held accountable. But we were, I would say, hopeful in this particular situation that justice would be done. And so when the attorney general of our state, Daniel Cameron, uh, comes forward and says that they would not be pursuing um, any charges relative to murder or manslaughter, that was earth shattering for many of us in Louisville. Um, and yet again, it appeared as though that justice was going to be denied. And then after that, there were some other things that occurred. One is that there was evidence that Mr. Cameron was concealing evidence, mm. um, that he was, in fact, usurping the process by which the appropriate persons could be held accountable. And that really stunk to high heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And as we read today, the DOJ has been doing investigative work there that has resulted in these indictments. And and I believe that eventually um, there's going to be some mess uncovered in terms of how the cases were handled mm. by Mr. Cameron. And mm. uh, it is really a, a despicable um, thing. Yeah, I was... Recently, we had a a, a, a a cop who was killed in a town right here in Indianapolis. He was a 26-year-old white cop, was killed by a black man who was out on parole. And I found myself in messaging with white friends, um, trying to explain to them how um, a black guy out on, on parole who has a really violent history, right? This guy's had, you know, lots of problems. How mm -hmm. him killing a white police officer is not equivalent to the same thing as Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd for nine and a half minutes. No. Right? And, and I think that it is so difficult for many white people to understand how history and how mm -hmm. culture and how power, th that we, we can't be history-blind, culture-blind, and power-blind and mm -hmm. think that these kinds of things happen on, a, on, a, on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so talking about racialized trauma, I think, is one doorway, Joel, into giving us the language and the syntax, mm -hmm. a taxonomy even, to understand these differences. Yes, yes. There's a clear power differential between whites and persons of color in this country. And if you don't believe me, you simply look at the various disparities that we have in our society, whether it's the wealth gap, whether it's how persons are policed, how persons are perceived. You have implicit biases that occur that are clearly seen. And so, yeah, I think that one thing we need to do is become students of history because none of yes. this has happened in a vacuum. This has happened within a particular historical context. And in fact, as I've done research on racial trauma, I read the book Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome Ooh. by Dr. Mm -hmm. Joy DeGruy. Dr. DeGruy 
has degrees in both social work and psychology. And part of her premise in that book is that racialized trauma can be visited multi-generationally. And there's a field of study called epigenetics. And epigenetics basically says that physiologically, biologically, and psychologically, trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, right? So if that is in fact true, which I believe it to be true, um, slavery is not something you can just get over if you're a person of African descent, if you are a descendant of enslaved persons here in America. Slavery has left such an indelible imprint on the black community that we are still experiencing the trauma connected to it. And, and that's the thing people don't get. And it's interesting to me, the hypocrisy of persons in America that don't have a problem with Jewish people continually reminding us of the Holocaust and its atrocities. But yet, when African-Americans talk about the continuing impact of slavery, then all of a sudden, uh, it's not that important, it's not that big of a deal. Hi, my name is Michelle Arndt and I'm a church planter and pastor in rural Wisconsin near the outer edges of the Twin Cities. Recently, I reflected on my time in the Gravity Cohort five years ago and the way it opened up space in me to see how for much of my Christian life, my words and works remained disconnected from the ways of Jesus because I lacked the ability to name my actual desires and how they played out in my real world. Gravity gave me the tools to excavate things like the way hidden desires for power and popularity prevent me from loving others well. It taught me the language of noticing through Kairos moments in everyday life that are far better at telling the truth about what I actually believe about Jesus and myself than 10 Bible studies ever could. Gravity is not about information, it's about transformation. I continue to reach regularly for the things that I've learned in Gravity in my everyday life and relationships as a person and a pastor. Those who know me best have heard me say repeatedly, gravity has been the single most transformative spiritual experience I've had thus far in my life as a follower of Jesus. If you want to clear the clutter of Christian ideas and move into living in the ways of Jesus, gravity is for you. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. In one of your articles, you talk about um, six ways um, that... Uh, the white and multi-ethnic churches can heal trauma, can be part mm -hmm. of uh, healing trauma. Um, awareness, uh, you list con awareness, confession and lament, prophetic preaching, pastoral care and referral, peaceful protest, and progress, not perfection. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things you say is that preaching on racism and racial trauma has to be specific mm -hmm. and particular in order mm -hmm. to be helpful. I wonder if you could say a bit more about what you mean by that and why, why does it have to be specific? to be helpful in healing? It needs to be specific because America as a whole has amnesia. It oftentimes wants to forget about yeah. the things that bring shame to our nation. You know, you have American exceptionalism uh, and you have the lost cause mythology, both of which kind of put together this 
mythological narrative about, mm -hmm. you know, the city shining on a hill mm -hmm. to be Reaganesque there. Um, and so we need to be very specific, very particular, very pointed in our preaching because a lot of people are simply ignorant about mm -hmm. the dynamics of systemic racism. They are ignorant about the past. They are ignorant. For instance, I recently was talking to a young lady who was a worker at a museum. And in fact, I think we were visiting Indianapolis. And I told her, I said, did you know that the first person who died in what led up to the Revolutionary War was a person of African descent, Crispus Attucks. And she looked at me as if I was speaking in tongues <laughs> and they were unknown tongues. And, and I had to basically educate her of that fact that in every war that America has engaged in, people of African descent have died in it. And, and so uh, I think we need to be specific and pointed in our preaching because of the far-reaching ignorance uh, that is mm -hmm. existent in America. And uh, when I think about specific preaching, Ben, I, I reflect upon the day of Pentecost in mm -hmm. which Peter was bringing that first gospel message. And there's a, a passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, where it says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. And so in that first gospel message, Peter lays out an indictment upon the Jews that were listening to him in terms of their complicity with the death of Christ. And so we see in that prototypical message that there's specificity. And if we're going to address the issue of sin, there has to be specificity. And interestingly enough, in Acts 2.37, it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Mm -hmm. So when there is prophetic, pointed, and particular preaching that is empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit on the issue of racism, then there is, one, an indictment that's laid upon the people in terms of their complicity in the sin of racism. And then two, mm. there is an opportunity to respond to the message and then ask the question, what then shall I do? Right. Mm. And mm. there ought to be a response on the part of white believers, on the part of others in terms of how to respond to the African-American struggle in America. Yeah. Yes. And I want to get to that because you, you mentioned several things that we can, that we can do. Um, but it just occurred to me as you were reading that too, that presumably not everybody, not every individual that Peter was speaking to 
was explicitly involved That's in the right. crucifixion of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And yet they were able to hear that indictment as, mm-hmm. okay, I'm complicit because I'm part of, you know, later on in that passage, Peter says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. generation. This, this, this whole system mm-hmm. is corrupt and you need That's to, right. if you're not moving away from it, you are complicit in it. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's really in good fact, deal. I describe myself as an anti-racist, right? Right. That is a person that intentionally and aggressively opposes the sin of racism. And, mm-hmm. you know, with this whole CRT debacle, you know, it has muddied the waters because once mm-hmm. again, you have persons of European descent, many of whom on the right have taken a term that was endemic to the black community and misappropriated. Yeah. And, and you know, CRT yeah. is not even being taught in our public school systems. In mm. fact, it is taught only in select law schools and graduate mm. schools, right? Yeah. And so um, getting back to what you were talking about, Ben, that yes, there is a systemic element to injustice that we see from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament epistles, as well as the book of Acts. And a lot of times, you know, white folks in the church will say, well, I never owned a slave. My family never owned slaves. I can go back to the 1700s and we never were slaveholders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So why should I receive this indictment? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, as you indicated earlier, that If a person is not actively anti-racist, then they are allowing racism to be perpetuated. Yes. Dr. Martin Luther King, in his letter from Birmingham jail in 1963, he was writing in response to a letter from some white clergy who were considered to be quote-unquote moderates Mm -hmm. and he said to them that they were basically on the sidelines and not actively engaged in the process of fighting injustice and therefore they were complicit so Mm -hmm. to be silent Mm -hmm. in the midst of racism is to be complicit with it and racism um Peggy McIntosh, uh, who is a scholar that has looked at systemic racism, she describes uh, systemic racism as kind of like being on a conveyor belt. You know, at an airport, you have those conveyor belts that kind of carry you along with your baggage. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who are walking on the regular floor next to you. And, you know, they're putting forth effort to try to keep up, if you will. But those people in the conveyor belt, they don't need to do a thing Mm -hmm. uh, to be carried along. And see, that's how white privilege um, operates, is that there are certain things that are accrued to white persons in our Mm -hmm. country by virtue of their ethnic or racial lineage. They are white. uh, They are not a person of color. And so therefore... Uh, For instance, you all do not have to worry about a police officer pulling you over and profiling you because of the color of your skin. Right Right? now. Now, certainly there's the issue of classism that comes into play. And, you know, you know, one could argue that 
You know, if a white person is dressed a certain way, you know, they might be profiled. But it is not because of their whiteness that they're being profiled. It's because of some other extraneous variable. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I just, I thought it was just that I was faster than everybody else. You're telling me there's a conveyor belt? I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. (laughs) Well, Joel, you kind of like just helped us define how you would talk about white supremacy and Mm. what you just said. And Mm -hmm. you say in your writings that that white people need to lament and repent. And I'm curious if you could just tell us more. Uh, We need to hear more about what does it mean to repent? You include restitution and repair and repentance. Mm-hmm. And many of us are just used to saying, I'm sorry. But you make the, the biblical case that repentance is more than that. And I'm curious if you could double click on that and tell us tell us more about that. Sure. So let's talk about lamentation or lamenting first. I think that's where it can start in terms of white people empathizing with the plight of their brothers and sisters of color in terms of dealing with the racial trauma, in terms of dealing with the whole history of chattel slavery and systemic racism, that there needs to be a connection at the emotional level, a grieving, a sorrowfulness, if you will, that white Christians need to experience. And You know, the Bible says, Paul says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so, you know, there's an an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And throughout biblical antiquity, um, persons whom God used to minister to others oftentimes had an existential and emotional connection to the people who were suffering. You see it, for instance, with Nehemiah, who was uh, privileged to some degree. He was in the lap of luxury at Susa, and he heard about his Jewish brethren and and how the walls had been burned down. And and the Bible talks about how he wept for a certain amount of time. And uh, eventually, after weeping, then he was motivated to do something. And that's when he went to the king and solicited his support Mm. in helping out with um, the rebuilding of the walls. And by the way, there was governmental support uh, on the part of the king to help rebuild the walls. You know, there are Christians who oftentimes they focus on small government and, you know, they minimize any um, impact or role the government should play in helping with racism and helping with oppression, you know, my contention is that there were certain laws that were on the books, certain things were codified that perpetuated systemic racism within the government. Yeah, Joel, this, these are the Jim same Crow. people that are these are the same people that are so scared of CRT. They they yeah, don't want the to use people. the government to dismantle yeah. racism, but they're also no. scared to death of of tools that expose how the government uh, uh, supported and enabled and That's created right. racism. <laughs> Redlining and, and real estate, all, all of the major systems and areas of our existence yeah. as Americans has been infected by systemic racism. Yes. Uh, economics, education, 
and even religion. So lamenting number one, repenting number two. So as you all know, uh, Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. Hmm. And so, um, you know, as white Christians are lamenting the sin of racism, you know, it is it is my hope that they get to the place where they say, my mind needs to change, you know, my my perspective and my perceptions of this need to change. And it changes to the extent that they're motivated to do something because repentance ultimately leads one to action. And so what do white Christians need to repent of? Number one, they need to repent of apathy. They need to repent of the sin of saying, well, I'm not involved with this and it doesn't matter to me. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about how we should not only be concerned with our own interest, but with the interest of others. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that is a critical part of body life in the church, that I do not have the luxury and no one else has the luxury to look at the suffering of someone else or to look at the suffering of an entire group of people and do nothing. Right. So so at the very least, there needs to be repentance uh, from the sin of of apathy, um, the lack of compassion, the lack of kindness, the lack of empathy uh, for their brothers and sisters of color. Yeah. Joel, I feel like we could chat with you all night. This is really good stuff, man. This is really good stuff. Um, maybe maybe we'll end with just this. You you do have a call to dissent uh, mm-hmm. in this article. I here's here's what here's my hypothesis. I've said this in the podcast before, but uh, a lot of the white Christians that we interface with at Gravity Leadership grew up in a focus on the family, more majority religious mm-hmm. right household, mm-hmm. and there their imagination for how to be publicly politically engaged mm-hmm. in 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 the world for Christ they actually have an allergy to that and mm-hmm. not only an allergy but i i would say there's some spiritual or religious trauma connected to that too i mean I, this mm-hmm. is just me spitballing as a armchair social worker i, I bow before the uh, expert here <laughs> but i i do think that people have some kind of reticence or reaction mm-hmm. against i don't want to be that person and mm-hmm. so i think now more than ever, the white Western evangelical church does not mm. have a public imagination no. for how to dissent and oppose injustice in public. We're mm-hmm. scared to death of being a culture warrior. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Scared or being to death a liberal of, or, or Marxist. Oh, yeah, well, well, the or, only thing or, worse than being a culture warrior is a liberal. Or, yeah, yeah right. or Marxist. Uh, right. By the by the way, woke is it? Woke is an African American term. It is an African American. And let's term. let's just let, let I, you know, white people stop using that word pejoratively. <laughs> please, please <laughs> stop it, it, it. It. In fact, I just confronted a new friend on Facebook who is uh, a white male Christian, uh, and he in our discussions about race. You know, as I was talking about the problem of Christian nationalism, on which I've also written, uh, then he wanted to both sides me and say, well, what about the woke people? And 
I asked them, I said, do you even understand the etymology of the word, the history of the word, and the fact that it was an in-house word within the black community? Yes. And, you know, I, I systematically gave him the history and uh, how it's been misappropriated. And he promised me that he will make an attempt not to use the term in a pejorative fashion. Yes. Uh, because what that, what that does is it immediately tells me that the person is ignorant and insensitive. Okay. Right. And, and, and it shuts, you know, using the term in that pejorative way is intended to shut down conversation and right. to deflect and distract. That's right. yeah. um, and so uh, when a person comes on social media talking like that, I already know what time it is with them. Uh, they, they, they have been co-opted into yeah, yeah. a, uh, a political well, propaganda. There's a propaganda it, war. A, that's right. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and this is, this is, this is, this is a colonial move to appropriate a black term that's used to celebrate seeing how white supremacy works. Mm -hmm. And then it's used, it's being weaponized against weaponized. black and white people who are yeah. trying to dismantle white supremacy. That's right. There's like 16 right. sins to repent of there. I'm just saying. Inc yeah. Incidentally, this guy uh, promising you that he was trying not to use it pejoratively, mm -hmm. uh, that's, the, that's the second good thing that's happened on social media. <laughs> <laughs> just to bring it back around to the... Oh my goodness, we're part of history here. <laughs> it's well, amazing, I mean, guys. So your, your interaction with this person is... Is a model of dissent, Joel. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I just it want is. to say there, there, there is a there is a confident, humble confrontation. Mm -hmm. There is, and then there is a you're opposing in love. And That's I wonder right. if you could just I wonder if you could just say more about what are some ways, what are some ways that you dissent, mm -hmm. and what are some ways that you'd like to see more people. Descent. Yeah. So, number one, as you just referenced, interpersonally, uh, as we talk to individuals who are seeking to learn about racism and all of its dynamics, that when there are things that are said that are rooted either in insensitivity or ignorance, they need to be called out lovingly. You know, Ephesians talks about speaking the truth in love. And so, uh, as well, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, I believe, talks about how open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So if I really love a person, if I love my white brother who is seeking to learn more about racism and in our interpersonal uh, connections, there are things said that are uh, racist uh, or uh, rooted in ignorance and insensitivity, those things need to be called out. Furthermore, for my white brothers and sisters in Christ out there, they can dissent whenever they witness racism going on, whether it's at the job, whether it's at their church, to speak up and speak out against it. They no longer have the luxury of remaining silent. That is very, very important. Another way to dissent is to uh, look at how our institutions are structured in terms of policies and processes. 
So that includes our religious institutions, our churches, our parachurch ministries. Uh, many of them are set up to perpetuate systemic racism. And so if you have white Christians who are within these organizations and they see how people of color are being devalued or tokenized, uh, then what needs to happen is that they need to dissent not only in terms of individual acts of racism, but they need to dissent in terms of the institutional or systemic level uh, of racism. Yeah. You, you're going to write about this more, yeah? You, you know what? I, I need please. to write a book. I need to write please. a book. Joel. It's, on, it's on my bucket list. Joel, <laughs> I, at, least, uh, at least workshop some chapters at Baptist News so we can uh, think alongside you and learn from mm. you. As we, as we wrap up here, uh, we'll put the links to some of your articles we've talked about in the show notes. Obviously, Great. Baptist News is where you're publishing uh, most recently. How else can mm. people connect with you on the internet? They can uh, follow me on Twitter at Joel A. Bowman Sr., at Joel A. Bowman Sr., and they can connect with me on Facebook, my full government name is on there. Joel Andrew Bowman Sr. is who I am. I'm the only one on the planet. There are other Joel Bowmans, but no Joel <laughs> Andrew Bowmans. And so those are two ways in which they can connect with me. And I don't have a problem giving out my email, mm. which is joelbowmansenior at gmail.com. Joel Bowman Sr. at gmail.com. So if you want to engage with me via email, you can do so. I'd love to talk with you. Well, we've benefited so much from your willingness to chat with us tonight. Thank you for, in the busyness of the co-vocational reality you're in, spending uh, an hour with us, Joel. It's been awesome. Hey, Christy. What happens when you slap Dwayne Johnson's butt? What? Nothing. No. You can do it. No, what, what happens, though? What happens when you slap when Dwayne? Someone, when someone does it? You, sure. I don't know if, what if happens. A generic person yeah. You hit rock bottom. Uh, I'm telling that to my kids. <laughs> I'm telling that one to my kids. Like that one? Rock yes, bottom. Yes, they like, they like the rock. They like the rock. That's yeah, rock. you hit rock bottom. <laughs> hit the rock bottom all right uh well see 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 you all next time mm -hmm. thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast if you're finding it helpful or enjoyable we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and you can join our gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join you'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as our email most fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful to join us go to gravityleadership.com slash join our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us 
at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.